Greetings, friends and brethren in the Lord. Welcome to Voice in the Wilderness. I'm Don Noble of Pure Heart Ministries, and I welcome you today with exceedingly, exceedingly great joy. Today, I'm going to ta- tackle a subject that I have never tackled before, and I am very excited to share this teaching with you. I believe it is absolutely important for us as believers to understand the meaning of Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday, and most Americans, let alone most Christians, do not even really know what this holiday is about and why the Jewish people celebrate it. But when I get done with this series, and there's no way I'll be able to complete it today, you will have a full understanding of why the Jewish people celebrate this most important holiday. And of course, as Christians, you will get the deeper meaning of that as um, I bring it to a conclusion. So, Father, thank you for those who are listening today. Lord, you are the light of the world. And I ask for those who are listening today that you would just shine your light so bright in their heart. Because if they know you, they have your light. Lord, give us that grace, that enablement to do what you've called us to do. Shine your light so brightly in this dark world, especially this time of year. You are the hope of the world, and we carry that hope deep inside us to give to those who are hopeless. So, Lord, I just ask you to bless each one. Thank you for giving us a hunger and thirst for you and your precious holy word in Jesus name. Amen. Recently, I was ordained into Beth Israel Ministries by a Messianic Jewish rabbi. Now you may ask, what is a Messianic Jew? It is simply a Jewish person who believes in Jesus. And then you may ask, well, why would you want to be ordained by a Messianic Jewish rabbi? Well, Because I understood my Jewish roots as a believer, I wanted a deeper understanding of things that I noticed that the church didn't teach, especially the feasts. And I wanted a deeper connection to my Jewish brothers and sisters in the Lord. So I took this step, and I'm very glad that I did. And as I was praying about what I was to share For today, the Holy Spirit spoke so loud and clear about Hanukkah. And I thought to myself, I really don't know much about Hanukkah. But after digging into some really good material, um, I'm excited more than ever to share with you this very deep understanding. And I do want to attribute a lot the majority of what I'm going to share with you is coming from an author, a Messianic Jewish woman by the name of Jill Shannon. Her book is titled A Prophetic Calendar, The Feasts of Israel. Of course, uh, this book talks about the seven feasts as well as Hanukkah and Purim. But uh, it, it's it's a very, very good book and um I would encourage you, if you want to know more about the Seven Feasts, uh, to get yourself a copy of this. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. 
So that's why I wanted to um, really kind of dig deep and understand what Hanukkah was all about. Now, the celebration of Hanukkah is not one of the seven original feasts instituted by God and described in Leviticus 23. But historically, it is one of the most important celebrations that the Jews partake of because of the supernatural deliverance from their enemies. The Hanukkah deliverance took place during the 400 years of silence between the writing of the Old Testament and the Gospels. We call these silent years because God gave no new biblical revelation during this time. Hanukkah is the Hebrew word for dedication. That's what it means. So it is known as the Feast of Dedication. It is also called the Festival of Lights. And I'm going to give you the background so that you will understand why it is called by these two different titles. The Feast of Dedication, known today as Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights, commences near the onset of winter on the 25th of Kislev, according to the Jewish calendar. And that typically will fall between the months of November and December. As you know, the Jews who follow the Jewish calendar uh, are on a, um, they're on the moon cycle. So they follow the moon in terms of how many days in a month. They, they don't follow the Julian calendar or the Gregorian calendar. Uh, and, you know, so when we have 30 days or we have 31 days, that's, so that's why each year it's going to fall on different days. Now, throughout the eight-day celebration, so this Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, is an eight-day celebration. The Jewish people commemorate an event of um, often over, which is often overlooked by the church. And this is what they commemorate, the victory of the Jews over the Syrians in 164 BC and the subsequent rededication of the temple. This festival, Hanukkah, is the most documented historically of all Jewish holidays. Jewish writings have carefully recorded the historical background for the celebration. And that is found. Historically, you can read the first and second of Maccabees. You can read the historian, Jewish historian Josephus. Uh, you can read Antiquities of the Jews and the Talmud. Now, if you are a person that likes history, you're going to love this story. Now, there are parts of this story that are a little hard to swallow. And I must confess right up front that when I initially read this story, it brought me to tears. I sobbed. You may have that same kind of experience. You may not. But I'm just warning you. It's a little hard to stomach. But the beauty of this story, as you will learn, 
relates to Jesus and to us as believers. Now, there's a great deal of prophecy and history that goes into the story of Hanukkah. And we must begin with the book of Daniel. During the period that Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon, which was about 600 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had a disturbing dream. He saw a statue with a golden head, with chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet a mixture of iron and clay. He then saw a rock strike the statue, and the entire statue was broken into tiny pieces, which were swept away with the wind. But the rock became a huge mountain that filled the earth. Nebuchadnezzar ordered his wise men not only to interpret his dream, but also to tell him what he had dreamed and threatened to execute them if they could not do so. As the astrologers could not accomplish this impossible task, God raised up the Hebrew captive Daniel to pray for information that no man could know. The Lord answered Daniel, and he received both the dream and its interpretation. <coughs> Excuse me. You can read that in Daniel, the second chapter, verses 1 through 45. The four parts of the statue represented four successful Gentile empires that God would permit to rule the earth for limited periods of time. The first was Babylon, which was the head of gold. The second would be Medo-Persia, which was represented by the chest of silver. The third would be Greece, pictured in the belly of bronze. The fourth would be Rome, symbolized by the iron legs. Apart from Babylon, of which King Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler, none of these other kingdoms had yet come to power. So, you see, they didn't even exist at that time, at the time of this dream. The Lord had shown Nebuchadnezzar, this Gentile king, the future, hidden in the mysterious language of dreams. The rock that broke all the worldly empires was God's coming kingdom, which became a huge mountain filling all the earth. History later fulfilled Daniel's interpretation. The Medo-Persians conquered Babylon in 539 BC. Alexander the Great established the Greek Empire in 330 BC. And the M Roman Empire rose to power in 63 BC. It was into the Roman Empire that God chose his Messiah to be born and to die. All of these Gentile superpowers inflicted great harm upon the land of Israel and its inhabitants or persecuted the Jewish people who were scattered throughout the regions of influence. The following is a brief summary of these persecutions. Number one. Babylon concluded its lengthy invasion of southern Israel in 586 B.C. They killed thousands, burned the temple and the royal palace, razed Jerusalem, carried away the gold and silver vessels, tables, and candlesticks of God, as well as Solomon's laver, and took into captivity the Jewish survivors, leaving a remnant behind. 
Now, we know that to be truth because the scriptures tell us that um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were captured and taken into Babylon. And because they were, the scriptures tell us that they were um, young, educated, well, they came from, you know, um, um, families that were well-to-do, then they were put in the schools there and taught. And the scriptures also tell us um, about the fact that Jerusalem, its walls, and uh, the te- and the the temple were destroyed, and we know through scripture that Jerubbabel uh, was sent to start help repair the temple. We know that uh, Nehemiah was sent to build the walls back up and restore the walls to the temple, and the scripture also so tells us in the book of Nehemiah that the he talks about the remnant. Those were the people that were left there. They were still living there. And that's who he harnessed their energy and their encouraged their faith. And they rose up to help Nehemiah build that wall. Okay. Under the Persian reign of Xerxes, son of Darius, this is 486 to 465 BC. Remember that BC when you, when we talk about BC before Christ, we're ta- the, the years are going to get smaller, not larger. So under the Persian reign of Xerxes, an official named Haman was elevated to power. He devised a genocidal scheme born out of his vengeful rage against one Jewish man by the name of Mordecai who would not show him sufficient honor. And so his plan was to annihilate all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. And this story you can read for yourself in the book of Esther. The whole entire book of Esther is about how Mordecai and Esther saved the Jewish nation. They would have been totally annihilated, totally removed off the face of the earth. After the death of Alexander the Great, his Greek empire was divided into four regions, which were ruled by four lesser kings. One of these four rulers became the cruel tyrant whose campaigns of persecution are the subject of this story. And lastly, the Roman Empire's beastly brutality against Jerusalem and the Jewish people occurred during the first and second century. Of course, we know that the Romans were in power because as we read in the Gospels um, about Jesus, it talks about Herod, it talks about, uh, and these are all uh, rulers under Caesar. All right, now, during and after Alexander's reign, and this is, this is very important, the Greek language, Alexander the Great, the Greek language, philosophies, religion, and culture exerted enormous influence over the vast territories he had conquered. The spread of Greek influence over conquered territories was called Hellenization. Two of the regions under Greek rule were Egypt, 
ruled by Ptolemy, and Syria ruled by Seleucus Nicator. These rulers founded dynasties that continued in power for close to two centuries. Syria and Egypt were continually striving against against each other for dominance, and the tiny land of Israel was sandwiched between their ambitions and armies. In fact, Israel was the central route linking Arabia to Europe and Asia to Africa. The Jewish people were caught in the middle of a geopolitical struggle which resulted in much oppression and persecution for their adherence to God's covenants. This period was marked by much political intrigue. In 175 BC, Syrian King Seleucus IV was murdered by his minister, and the king's younger brother usurped the throne. His name was Antiochus IV, but he blasphemously called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the manifestation of God. Not only was there treachery and murder in the Syrian corridors of power, but Israel's priestly families, listen carefully, Israel's priestly families were also caught up in this life and death battle for power and control. By the time of Antiochus IV's reign, a bitter schism had risen among the Jews in Israel over the issue of Hellenization. So you see what's happening? There's, there's, there's this division between the Jews over Hellenization, this Greek culture being impacted upon them. There were two severely divided groups, the Jewish worshipers who clung to the faith of their fathers and the law of Moses, and those Jews who wildly embraced everything, um, everything Greek, from their names to their gods to their foods and customs. Those who wanted to become Greeks curried favor with Antiochus, bribing him for positions and requesting permission to introduce Greek customs to Jerusalem. Through much wickedness, some within Israel's priesthood were corrupted with every form of greed, idolatry, power-mongering, and even murder. I want to stop there for a minute because I want you to understand the full effect here of Hellenization and how this brought a division among the Jews. And you have, you have a part, a sect of Jews who are very devoted to God and very devoted to their faith. And then you have what I would call secular Jews. They're not embracing anything about God, but they're embracing everything secular, everything Greek, Greek gods, Greek foods, Greek customs. And of course, they want the favor of this ruler, Antiochus, and so they bribe him for positions. And things get more wicked and more wicked, and even, even the priesthood is corrupted with greed and idolatry and, you know, power shifts and murder. Now, at that time, Israel's high priest was a righteous man. His name was Onias Third, whose priesthood was from 196 to 175 B.C. 
His brother Joshua was a Hellenist who sought to radically reform Israel's customs to the Greek way of life. So much so, this is what Joshua did. He changed his name to Jason, a Greek name, and offered Antiochus a large bribe to appoint him as the high priest instead of his godly brother. As high priest, Jason enlisted Israelites as citizens of Antioch and built a gymnasium in Jerusalem's Tyropian Valley, where the men performed naked. Some of the Hellenists underwent surgery to cover their circumcision so that they would look like Greeks when naked. Several years later, a Benjamite, who was called Menelaus, bribed Antiochus with a large sum and wrested the priesthood from Jason. So here we go. We have a righteous priest by the name of Onionis. His brother bribes Antiochus so that he now becomes the high priest. Well, then here comes another guy of the Benjamin tribe, and he bribes with an even larger sum, and he takes the priesthood from Jason. Menelaus stole gold from God's temple to pay Antiochus the bribe. Onias learned what he had done and tried to make public this crime. However, Menelaus conspired with one of the king's officials and through deceit and treachery, Onias was murdered. For a while, Antiochus continued to make friends with the Jewish leaders who wanted nothing to do with Moses. They continued to flatter Antiochus and bring him revenues that should have gone to the Lord's house. These Jews prostituted themselves before an idol-worshiping king to suit their goals. They desired to reshape Israel from a monotheistic nation under God's law to a one-world Greek government with its language, currency, and religion. They made deals with the king and received power and authority to spread their political and social agenda, agenda into every level of Israeli life. You know, if I didn't know any better, it just sounds like what we're living in, what we're experiencing right now in the United States. The godly Jews grew more and more despised. They were considered to be antiquated religious zealots who were too stubborn to realize that Greek culture and religion were far more sophisticated and civilized than ancient covenants with the Hebrew God. And as we will now see, Greek culture was not as civilized as it was purported to be. The event that triggered a full-blown tribulation for the godly Jews was Antiochus' decision to invade Egypt in 169 BC. He would have conquered this region, but Rome sent a dispatch to force his withdrawal from Egypt. Antiochus was enraged and humiliated by Romans by Rome's exercise of authority. He needed to display his wrath and frustration against a defenseless people since Rome had thwarted his simmering aggression. Unsuspecting Jerusalem lay directly in his path northward. And instead of continuing on his journey back to Syria, the demonized tyrant ordered his soldiers to destroy Jerusalem's center of worship and murder its inhabitants. Within three days, he had slaughtered 
40,000 Jews, not sparing women, children, or the elderly. Another 40,000 were sold as slaves. He broke into the temple of God with much destruction and stripped the holy place of its sacred articles. On the 25th of Kislev, 168 BC, he erected a statue of Zeus in God's holy place with his own face on the idol. He sacrificed a pig and sprinkled its blood on God's altar. He poured the broth over the Torah scrolls and then burned them with fire. The prophet Daniel had prophesied that a wicked ruler would set up an abominable abominable idol in the holy place and would leave Jerusalem desolate of her worshipers. Daniel 11:31. Harsh laws were decreed forbidding Jews to circumcise their infant sons, to forbidding them to observe Mosaic dietary laws or to keep the Sabbath. They were required to participate in the daily sacrifice of pigs on Greek altars in every village and town and to eat the sacrificed flesh. Now, most of you know that at that time, following Mosaic dietary laws, pigs were absolutely forbidden to eat. And the only meat that they could eat had to be kosher, meaning they could not eat the blood. So to eat pigs and to be forced to eat it every day had to be one of the worst experiences. These laws were enforced and policed with house-to-house searches. Those found owning Torah scrolls or observing any aspect of Judaism were tortured and killed. Women who circumcised their sons were crucified with their babies, hung from their necks, strangling them both. Many faithful Jews were mutilated and burned alive in boiling cauldrons. There are a number of chilling and inspiring stories from this hideous period in which Greek soldiers offered, quote, deals, end quote, to the stubborn Jews to entice them to avoid the slow torture with a face-saving pretense. In one case, a beloved and elderly scribe named Eliezer was refusing to eat sacrificed pork, although they were about to scourge him to death. The officers then tempted him to bring in some lawful meat and eat it so the people would think he was obeying Greek law, even though the meat was not actually pork. Eliezer refused, stating that he would not wish to mislead the young men who would think that he had gone over to the foreign religion. Under the final blows of the sharp instruments, he said, The Lord in his holy knowledge knows that while I might have escaped death, I endured dreadful pains in my body from being flogged, but in my heart... I am glad to suffer this because I fear him. In another terrible case of the martyrdom of a mother and her seven sons, one of the children spoke these words to his tormentors just before he died. Quote, it is better to die at men's hands and look for the hopes God gives of being raised again by him, for you will have no resurrection to life. And I need to stop there, but you can see this is so, so vivid, and um, it's, it's, wow, it's right in your face. This is pretty harsh stuff that uh, 
this king from Syria uh, did to the Jewish people. These are just horrible, horrible things. But um, there, is, there is a good ending to this story, believe it or not. Um, and that's why we do celebrate the um, Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. So this is Don Noble of Pure Heart Ministries. If you would like to continue to hear these podcasts, you can go to www.pureheart.today. We've gotten everything up to date. And if you want to hear this broadcast again, you can listen at 11 p.m. tonight on WWVA 1170 AM. And I certainly look forward to being with you next week as I continue understanding the observance of Hanukkah and the meaning of this wonderful festival. So with that, shalom, shalom. Peace be unto you.